Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. This is Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown, joined by the Apprentice VC himself, Michael Smith from C+. Michael, how are you doing? I'm great, Graham. Thanks for having me back. Excellent to have you back. A lot's happened. Six months in between your first appearance on Asia Tech Podcasting today. You're going to learn about what you're learning, learning the ropes, as you call it on learning your blog. Learning about learning. Learning yeah. about learning, being a VC, the life of a VC. So what's going on? You've been, uh, every time I look at your feed on Twitter, you seem to be in a different part of the world popping up somewhere. Not too much. I was, uh, I did some, I did some traveling. I was in Korea. That was fun. I've been in uh, Thailand a little bit. Not too much. Right. I was in Thailand to close the deal. It's not announced yet, but probably in the next week or two, it'll hit the wire, I think. Mm. It's our first uh, deal in Thailand. I'm excited about that. Um, Fantastic. Because your, your focus is Southeast Asia, right? With C+. Yeah, yeah. That was so the... we, we kind of have this lens of Singapore is HQ for, for Southeast Asia. I know some people might argue with that, but that's kind of our lens. So yeah. a lot of the stuff we look at is predominantly... Singapore companies that are HQ'd, but they do things in other markets. And then we also have other countries we care about. And I would say Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, are the kind of like the key ones there yeah. besides India. Um, so we just did our first kind of deal that's not a Singapore headquartered, it's a Thai headquartered company. Mm. Um, so that's going to be cool. And then, yeah, so, you know, so these, yeah, that'll come out soon, hopefully. Excellent. Look forward to that. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Well, last time you were on the show, we talked quite a bit in depth about your background. You obviously spent a number of years at Yahoo, yes. part of the, the Yahoo Mafia, the alumni oh. that went and changed the oh. world. Yes. So that was a big part of your story. And then, you know, you were a part of you know, the Seed Plus. I mean, obviously it was a new venture, really. I mean, you saw a new fund that was set up under the... It's under, under jungle partners right yeah so there there are uh, the best way to explain it is there are anchor lp mm -hmm. yeah so there are anchor lp and also we kind of run under the auspices of them so to speak but it's a separate team right. separate fund Got yeah. it. but they give you a bit more sort of lateral room to go and experiment through maybe oh for sure like we have our own room i think what they give us is a lot of counsel they give mm. us a lot of learning frameworks um but their focus is really on series a and up and ours is directly below that so it's a great kind of dividing line but mm. you know there's quite a lot of talent in the jungle team so that's a great place for us to you know continue the learning and continue to get guidance and strategy and stuff like that so i want to tap your brain about this apprentice vc thing i know you sure. i mean this is on your blog you describe yourself as learning the ropes when yeah. you were Last on the show, so if you go back to August, September last year, how long were you in C plus by that point? Probably if it's been six months since the podcast, I was I'm coming up on two years. Right. So okay. it's almost a year and a half, year and four months when I was on the podcast. Yeah. So I'd be, you know, a good year or more into it. Um, few deals under my belt, a few more since then. Um, and the way I think of apprentice stuff, just to kind of surface why I use that is I, I do think there are businesses in the world or trades that you learn. So my dad's a mechanic, mm. my dad's a car mechanic, and I grew up 
tinkering with cars, even built my own first car. And, you know, you can go to a trade school or you can go to mechanic school and become a certified mechanic without a doubt. Right. And then you will start working, but you'll find that all the little tricks and the things and the, Hey, this, this year VW does this, and this is the way to get the engine out. Or this is a weird thing that happens with the Cadillac converter and Subarus. And here's a hack are all done through learning. Hmm. And then those techniques are usually passed on to you from another person who's done them before. And like my dad has people he calls or, even these groups and stuff like that where I'm working on this. So I, I've always thought of a VC thing in line with what I thought of my dad's career. And what I learned is that you learn through doing mm. and you can't, you know, you can say you're a mechanic, but you might not, you can't say you haven't overhauled a transmission until you've overhauled a transmission. So I think that's where I took the whole thing from that. Yes, I can say I'm titled a VC and I'm given this role and it's awesome, but can I say I've done every facet of it until I've actually done those facets? I can't. So that's where I think it is a trade or a craft that is somewhat like an apprenticeship. Hmm. And, and I think there's other people in the industry that feel that way. Like if you listen to like Hunter Walk or yeah. that, there's a few other people in the VC space that they basically say it is an apprenticeship, but just a lot of people don't want to call it that. Right. So. Is there a reason why they don't want to call it that? I don't know. I think some people look, there's a lot of entitled people in the world or there's a lot of people that, Hey, if you're given a title and you're given a role, then you, you are that, but I'm, I guess I have my cocky moments and I'm known to talk a lot, but I try to realize that there's a lot to learn and Mm. until you've done a bridge round, you've never done a bridge round until I've done a particular type of equity structure. I've never done that. So I can't say that I've done everything until I've done it. And then there's so many permutations of this that, you could imagine over years and years is when you would have. So when you read a Fred Wilson or you listen to Brad Feld, some other these, you know, people that I look up to and have done amazing things in the VC space, they'll tell you that you learn through doing. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I think about it. And I, and I know that if you'd asked me some questions two years ago and probably got me on record for how I might've answered them, I'm sure if we were listening to those right now, we would both be like, Ooh, I can't believe you said that yeah. because, the what I've learned between now and then is amazing, right? Mm. Well, I want to dive into some of that today because, I mean, that fascinates me. Going back to your, I mean, you mentioned your dad as a car mechanic. I'm fascinated by that as well because you talk about that apprenticeship structure. Uh, was your dad, did he grow up as a, a car mechanic? Did he get apprenticed, apprenticed himself? Yeah, yeah. So he very early on was fixing and tinkering and he can recall that it's because someone let him into a shop right and i think he was before the days of getting certified and all those things and he ended up getting inside people that worked on german automobiles so that's my dad's specialty Mm. and you know so and it was like oh there's you know there's this go-kart racing go-kart all learn to fix those and then he was a motorcycle rider and racer so it's like tinker with those and then he was offered cars so you know, I don't think he ever went to a formal trade school. It was, right, right. It was, but know, it was hands-on, right? As you hands said, hands-on. I think these are things like I can. I tend to call these a craft, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that the world has gotten so quick to do everything, and that everything's supposed to be watch this video on YouTube, and you can do it. That I think yeah. some part of the world has left out a certain amount of the craft or the tradesmanship mm. and the quality that goes around with that, and that things take time, and you learn these things, and 
there's just something to that. Like one of our partners just recently was in Geneva. We have an investment in a, a watch thing. It's kind of crazy. And he was in Geneva at one of the craftsmen that builds tooling and cases for watches. You know, it's a hundred something year old company. And yeah. the guy was just telling my partner that like, look, a lot of the world has forgotten that it takes time to build something that's really amazing. You'll make mistakes. And that, you know, the notion of quality is sometimes lost on, I don't want to say a generation, it's lost on a group of people that everything's delivered so fast and tech is so rapid that you forget about this quality angle. And that's where I think apprenticeship helps you to kind of keep the quality dimension alive, mm. so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting. I see it here in Japan, Michael. I mean, obviously the apprentice structure, especially with craft, is very strong. Yep. You know, if you, if, whether it's making swords or making masks for no plays or whatever it is, you know, the the craftsman, the artisan, so to speak, yep. he will learn his craft for a lifetime with a mentor. And, you know, to pass down it in very sort of father-to-son style relationship. Yep. And that then would then, you know, empower that. Which I think to- if you look at large firms or franchises you know venture firms that have been around a long time that's kind of how it works right like you maybe come in through the bottom or sideways but you're working with people who've done it who eventually pass the baton but you're working up through them and you know and i think that's what's really interesting about vc and i think that's also what you add to that is also realizing that it just changes all the time like Mm. it's it's not this immutable space and time where like we just do this it's you know that's i guess the things i've i've learned if we kind of go through that list which is crazy which is you know the things i do to understand legal documents the things i do to understand numbers the things i do to understand markets i just had no concept that these were all things that have to get done in the space of just doing one deal mm. right like a lot of people think it's you meet somebody cool startup let's get this done there's so much more to it, right? It's it's getting to know people. There's the psychology. There's going through the numbers. There's going through their company setup and making sure it's sound and there's not mistakes in it. There's looking at 40 and 50 page shareholder documents. And it's, you know, I knew there was all this stuff, but again, until I actually did, did it, it exactly. I didn't know how to do it. So let's, let's compare Michael now and, and Michael two years ago Obviously, you've learned a lot in that time. I mean, if you haven't learned anything, you've wasted those two years like anybody, yeah. right? I mean, it's been a sort of a, an immersive learning, as you say, the learning by doing. We, we can talk about the sort of things you have learned. What I'm curious to know is how, how do you sort of spend your time a little bit differently now? Because do you sort of prioritize different things to, you know, when you started out? Because now you know they're a lot more important because you've been through the deals and so on. Yeah, so I think like everybody when you join this business, I can remember because I keep pretty good notes. Like I've been reading, I don't know if you've read the Ray Dalio book. Principles oh, Principles, yet. yeah. Yeah, so good. I'm, I'm, have you, have you actually re- used any of that in what you're doing? So I haven't read the whole book yet. I'm, I'm, I have one book at work and one book at home, so I'm bouncing between these. Right. Um, I, I know that like sometimes as nerds and geeks and calendars, we just tend to rely on tech. But what I've taken to this year is a notebook. Mm. Um, I'm using this one. It's one of these old Kickstarter projects, but it, it's alive now and they build it. It's nomadic. Mm. Um, and it's this interesting notebook that has uh, time slices per day, like 6.30, 7.30, all that kind of thing. And then it has 
goals and tasks for the week and then goals and tasks for the month and a calendar per month. Right. Um, and I've been more introspective about trying to show where I've been and what I did because I realized you can forget these things. So I think learning when I first started was, oh, I'm just going to meet tons of people and, and that's awesome. And I'll, there'll be this serendipitous deals through that. And I've come to find out that that's very rarely how any of the deals we've done have come to light. Right. They're usually all warm leads. They're usually us doing a little research or meeting startup A. They're doing this maybe not well, but they've kind of keyed us into that's an interesting space. Then we go out and we do a lot of homework in that space, try to meet everybody in that space. And then one of these guys is one of the ones that we go, if you happen to be raising, we'd like to talk to you because we like the space you're in, but how you're doing it. Um, so that's one of the things I've learned. I think the other one is that like you can spend, you can be too busy. Um, so I've been trying to be less busy and give more time to think more time to research and more time for, you know, what I've noticed now is the network keeps growing is on Tuesday. Someone says, Oh my gosh, my best friend is in town from San Francisco mm -hmm. and he does this. He only has till Friday to meet you. Old Michael would have had a completely booked calendar. Right, right. Because I have all these people that want to meet me, which is great. I'm not complaining. And then I would have been, oh, shit, I don't have any time. Current Michael kind of has open time blocked that I may was going to do something else. And I'll go, great, I can meet that guy. Let me, let's go meet at Starbucks. So right. that's been a big learning for me. And then those people have actually turned out to be ones that have led us to deals more than all the random copies with everybody, right? So how do you manage that? Because that, that, that's the ongoing challenge, of not just being a VC, but anybody in that space who's in demand, right? Because especially being a VC, people want to talk to you because yeah. you've got something. How do you then guard your time? Obviously, you're quite conscious of it now, having that notebook as well, yeah. which is really interesting. But what do you do? I mean, you talk about these blocks. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you sort of structure <laughs> yourself? Because I'm always keen to learn. I'm always fascinated to learn by what do people do? Yeah, so I, I hate to do a portfolio plug, but I'm I'm using Eevee, right, which go. is an a, AI scheduler. But I used Eevee before we invested in it, so I can kind of say I was a fanboy anyway. Yeah. Um, We've had Praveen what, on the show as well. So yeah, so what good. I do is I just block – I have time that she's not allowed to block basically. Right. So the one thing that's became apparent to me is it's so easy for her to book meetings and, and use every little slice of time that I was actually doing that problem. So mm. then I went back in and rearranged it to say, I know I'm just this, this two hours is blocked. This two hours is blocked. And then the other times I have set for this is coffee, this is whatever. And then I just tell her if so-and-so emails me and it's someone I, I think I want to meet, I'll just say, great within the next two weeks, book a coffee. Mm. And then Evie just figures that out. And, and then I keep spreading those out basically. And I'm conscious of it. I actually have asked them for some features so that it can tell me when my calendar is too full to not right. book any more things. So I've been doing that. Um, and I've just been trying to delegate more to like, I can't possibly meet all these people, but this person who wants to meet me is actually interesting for my other partner. And then I'll be like, hey, do you mind meeting them? Because I think you're going to have a better bond, right? Um, so we've been trying to do some of that. But it is a definite problem because I think you could easily say from 8 in the morning till 6 at night or 7 at night, I'll do my work and make time for all these meetings and just be exhausted. And mm. I don't think that's good either. Yeah, um, I wonder where the balance is. You consciously ring fencing time, it seems, which I think is, yes. is, is really important. 
and then you're you're making time for because you can go to one extreme and just make yourself completely unavailable, right? Which, Which would not be good. Exactly. Would not be good. And on the other extreme, you're sort of out there pimping yourself everywhere. And that's no good as well, because, you know, that's the serendipitous yeah. stuff, which is completely random. Are you sort of applying sort of rules like, okay, I'll go to these events. I won't go to that type of event. So I don't, I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I hardly go yeah. to any events. <laughs> so my current kind of rule, and maybe it's bad, I don't know, is if I'm speaking at an event or I'm on a panel, right. I'll go. If I'm not unless it's a topic that's really near and dear to me or it's somebody I know that speaks that I want to hear from them, I'm just not doing much eventing. And maybe this is because I have kids and because I want to be home and have dinner with them and tuck them in. And a lot of times in the tech industry, every event's at night. I just don't go to a lot of them. Um, and that's just a conscious effort of mine to, one, I'm, I'm working already a lot of hours and then I want to get home and see the kids. So mm. if you do events it cuts it right out. Yeah. So I think it's, so I just don't I don't think do it's a bad thing. I don't think right. it's a bad, I mean, you said, I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, I, I remember recall the Seth Godin quote. He says, you know, don't go to events, don't watch TV. Yeah, so uh, there's, there's a famous, very famous guy from our own ecosystem, Razmig. Razmig's the founder of Vicky. Yep. One of the founders of Vicky. He's very good exit to Rakuten. He now lives back in San Francisco doing really well for himself. He's got a new venture. I think he's still a board member with Rakuten. Um, and he's somebody that I used to, you know, you would not see him outside of your own meeting with him or perchance at some something that he was at. You generally wouldn't see him. And I remember people used to ping him and he would say, look, if you're actually got something amazing to work on and you probably also have a family, what would be the purpose of going to these events? Right. I already have a business. I don't need to find a startup. Um, and I'm not actually looking for a mate because some people kind of a, a social thing. They meet people for dating, which is fine, right? He goes, outside of that, like, I'd rather just focus on my business than go home and see my kids, right? And I, and I remember that myself because I was just coming into family and I was like, that's so right because, yeah. you know, so I know other people are like, I'm looking for people, I'm looking for a developer, I'm looking for a new role. Well, then you should probably be at a lot of events because that's how you find those things, right? And then socially, you might be saying, I'm looking to date people. That's great. But I think outside of that, these things are pretty incredible time sinks. And I, I also question if you see founders and new startups that are just constantly eventing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, for what purpose are you, are you, are you now maybe it's very, I'm looking for people or I'm looking for customers, but generally I find that you're probably spending more time doing that than running your business. Right. Mm. Which, which if you already have this startup, why do you need to go to these events? So so there's kind of a culture of eventing, so I don't bash it because some people really love it. But for myself, I don't think it's where things get done, right? Yeah. And I, as well, it's not a great use of your time in the long run. You know the kind of places you need to go, the kind of meetings you need to have. Being a VC, people are obviously going to want your time. You have to be a bit more guarded, and you're kind of learning that through, you know, as you said, like, it's like learning the ropes. And Yeah, and I, and I think that's and, and that's the other hard part. Like, like you, you eventually have to get better at triaging in my mind where to spend your time and this mm. is a tough one because you could easily be uh missing things or you might be doing some sort of i won't meet someone on this or i won't meet someone on that but i i think you know there's other ways to look at this but i think you have to start getting good at okay i know these people are adding me on linkedin and i know uh and i know that it's important to 
to meet certain people or this criteria, but you have to have some criteria for like, you know, I have a lot of people that pay me with, can you look at my startup and just tell right. me things, how to get better? They're not really looking to raise money. And I tell them like, look, it's not something I have capacity for anymore. Like if you're, if you are trying to raise around and you think we're a good fit for you, we should definitely meet up. But if you're just saying, hey, can you look at my company and do you think we found product market fit? I don't have time for that. And mm. I don't think it's a good use of my time as, as what I do. And I don't think it's good for them because I'm not necessarily focused on that, right? right. So, so triaging kind of these reach outs, something you have to start getting good at. Um, well, let's sort of unpack that. I want to, I mean, without giving away the, the Michael Smith algorithm, you know, in terms of if I was a startup and, you know, I wanted to, to meet you and obviously talk about around or raising capital or whatever it was of advice, what, what would you, what are the signs that that startup needs to admit to you for you to say, this is worth my time? Because now you've had two years in the game, you're getting pretty good at discerning what's going to work. Well, I think the first thing we do is like a lot of people aren't necessarily raising, and usually I try to make sure that like if you're raising, let's chat. If you're trying to figure out do you need to raise, maybe it's still good to chat. But if you're just fishing, there's probably a better use of your time and my time. So that's the one thing we try to suss out. And that's why we generally just ask people like, are you raising? How much are you raising? Because they may be raising like 100 grand and I'm not a fit for them. They may be raising 3 million. I'm not. A, so we try to just get that cleared up. Um, the second thing would be, you know, if you're not in one of the businesses that there's that's in my thesis for where we want to deploy capital, I probably won't meet you mm. unless you're like a warm lead where, hey, these guys are somebody that's going to be working on something new. Because again, I don't want to waste their time either because if we go through this whole thing of teaching me your company in an hour, but it's not a space I'm ever going to invest in, probably doesn't make sense for them or me, right? Mm. Um, so those are some things that I think we, we have to dig into. Um, so generally there's that. Um, I would say generally there's just a certain tone and demeanor when you're interacting with people, whether it's through chat or email, LinkedIn, that you get a sense of like, you know, this is somebody I think I can talk to and I, I can add value to versus this is somebody who's just kind of, you know, we get these, like these emails where they've emailed, you know, on the CC line is 40 VCs. Yeah, exactly. I, I got to tell you work. right away. And I, yeah. I'm actually the one that replies to you know, people can test it. If you if you send an email to hello at Seed Plus, that's actually me. It's not a bot. Um, and when people do that, I still reply to them and say, hey, thanks for your deck. It's not a space for us or whatever. And I put PS, look, I bet nobody replies to you because you've CC'd 40 <laughs> people. Like, And I just put like, hey, note to self, don't CC the entire internet if you expect someone to reply to you. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to kind of help them, right? Because it, it's it, it's a technique that's not going to work. Like as soon as we see twenty other people on the email, I don't think anybody replies. Mm -hmm. Like, why would you, right? And yeah. why do they do that? They're just lazy. I mean, and if you're lazy with that, what else are you lazy with, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, so I think you have to put some care into who you're reaching out to, why you're reaching out to them. You know, and I think ways to do that are getting warm leads, or it could be. Hey, I'm also doing a B2B marketplace and I've noticed that you invested in Moglix and I'm this other piece that fits into Moglix and would you like to chat? Of yeah. course, because maybe I can help Moglix or maybe I can introduce these two people. Like, um, you know, so those are the things that like, and I think people who know what they're doing or have had some counsel on this understand that. Um, and again, I, I would say cold leads are generally not where it's at anyway, because these people that know someone that knows me will get an email via them. 
to say like you know and that's where actually most of our stuff comes through it comes from so and so knows someone and they talk to them about fundraising and they said well you should go talk to my friends at seed plus and then mm. there you go right that's generally how it works anyway so how, how do you actually get into that pipeline of, of warm leads i mean if you were a startup what advice or you're advising a startup what advice would you give them to because- i think with your i think if you're a startup and you're trying to raise and you want to be in this funnel of warmly it's it's you need to be able to connect with somebody who's either raised or is raising or knows how this works to have them say hey who in your network should i be talking to and it may not be us it could be whatever and then they could say oh great well i'm really close with wave let me introduce you to wave or uh my friend went to see and we it's funny we have people that have we've turned down but we're very clear to people we're trying to get back to them quickly we're trying to be very expressive that say like so we've actually had leads that come from other companies that we've turned down mm. but what they say is you know we enjoyed our time talking to seed plus you might want to talk to them too right mm. so i think that if there's any interaction or nucleus around i've talked to these people or i know them those people will generally make these introductions for you right and then what i always say is if you don't have these people in your network you probably need to get better at your network mm. because you'll need these people for other reasons as well, right? For advice or mentorship, whatever. And that's why I think a lot of people don't realize the value of angels or realize that you align yourself with some people early on. That That's actually, you know, a lot of times your angels are the people that introduce you to your VCs. Mm. Also a good place to start is your portfolio, right? As you said, I could get an idea of what your investment thesis was and also get access to the people who have access to you. Yeah, and generally it probably comes through, uh, you know, you look at these things and it's other people you, you know, right? So, yeah, so some people go look at the portfolio, then they go read those things on LinkedIn. They figure out, oh, I'm connected to the guy that's in that company. I'll add him on LinkedIn and I'll say, hey, can you call get Michael to call me? Something like that, right? Mm. I mean, we always reply to everybody. We always try to follow up, but it's not going to be that everybody that we talk to that we would go have a meeting with because you would just have so many meetings, right? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have a life. And Yeah, and I think at some point people, I, I you know, the one thing I don't think people realize is – inherently what VC is. I think sometimes people are living this utopian view that VCs are just handed a pile of money from other people. This pile of money is just somebody managing it to go out and hopes that those piles turn into bigger piles and it all comes back. And on some theoretical level, yeah, that's what it is. But what they probably don't realize is there's a method to the madness, right? Mm. So when we're in here, like, you know, and I think any VC goes through this. If you're a new fund, you're looking for deals to help you in what we think is what is wrong, what happens with new funds, which is you look for these optic deals. You look for things that help you with getting access to other deals. You look for things that maybe close quickly. You look for things that, hey, my core thesis is going to be this, so I want my first deal to be in that thesis. So people don't realize there's a lot of structure. Mm. And then generally we all do have a thesis. And what they may not realize is, I've already allocated some money to that thesis, right? So if you say like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not using real figures, but if you said, okay, 25% of my fund is going to be in e-commerce. When I've deployed 25% of my fund in e-commerce, I'm not making more e-commerce uh, investments. That's not because I don't like you or I don't think this company's good. It's I, I'm not actually going to go put 30% of my fund in e-commerce because I've already agreed it should only be 20%. So people don't realize there's a lot to portfolio construction. And anytime you have to realize if you're talking, and this is why I don't mind people asking questions. Like 
really smart people about this will ask you like how much of your fund is deployed. And again, I don't have to give them the dollar value, right? Because say, hey, I'm halfway deployed. I'm 60. They'll know what that means. What that means is for that final 40%, I'm probably becoming quite precise with it. Because I could say, I've yet to make an investment in this space, so I'm really interested in doing that. If you're not the guy in that space, chances are nothing's going to happen, right? Mm. So you have to know who you're talking to, a little bit about what their thesis is, a little bit about where, how far or in and out they are in a fund, because all these things actually mean something to how we deploy money. So let's talk about your investment thesis. Are you public with that? I mean, how much of that do you disclose? Um, yeah, like, like we, at a very high level, yeah. like we don't go and publish it. We haven't done as far as like first round capital or social where you everything's in there. We're thinking about that. But part of the thing is we're, we still learn and evolve it. So if we put it in stone, it could change. So what we tell people is at very high levels, uh, we believe the world's becoming more automated at a very high level. And that, and that could be everything from EV to helping you manage your calendar to robots helping you on the factory floor. Like the world's becoming more automated and we, we like to invest in automation, all right? So that would be one thing. The, what, the other thing we think of is kind of the future of work, but with a lens towards if you think about my first thing, which says uh, lots of stuff's going to be automated, that definitely affects the employment market. Both maybe you're a type of person where your job got automated out, or you're an employer and you're managing automation and managing normal employees. Uh, you see a lot of stuff around flexible work. So our view is the future of employment creates space around two problems, one for employers and one for employees. Hmm. So the way we potentially look for work changes, the way we get paid, the way that you might have an insurance policy that you only turn on when you go to work and you turn it off when you're not at work. Like you can imagine all these things and then employers might need to manage that they give insurance to someone during the hours they work and they take it away when they don't. So you can imagine there's lots of issues or, or white spaces around the future of work, both from employees and employers. Um, the third one is just marketplaces, right? Like we're a big believer in marketplaces, not so much just consumer ones, but that marketplace dynamics will hit every sort of facet around uh, the enterprise as well, both for even software and materials and all these things. So we're on our almost third marketplace investment. Hmm. Um, we think that um, in, in automation, you can get another fine grain on it, which is kind of applied machine learning, applied vision, create things. So this is very specific things of like, this type of AI, AI thing will help you with your uh, mon money laundering things inside of a bank, or this type of AI will help you on insurance tech, right? That might be some of it. Um, so kind of getting really specific around automation because we think those things have interesting niches. Um, another one is around, you know, if, if you ask, if you query most people in Asia and just say, do you love your bank? Hmm. <laughs> Most won't say, unless they're probably private banking or wealthy, they won't say they love their bank. They say, I use my bank. Um, and then I think you could say the same thing for insurance. Do you love your insurance agent or whatever? Most will tell you, I tolerate them. So our view is this, these BMOs kind of own insurance and banking and every facet of it, but people don't necessarily love it. And the world's kind of changing where you could get credit from another person versus a bank, or you could get uh, alternative forms of insurance. So we just think there's a lot of white space around 
that the future, you know, not just a fintech window, but the future of banking, you know, core money movement and insurance uh, is going to evolve. Is there anything specifically in Southeast Asia? Because, I mean, those are really exciting areas that you're talking about. Are there any sort of areas, applications of that in the Southeast Asian region that excite you particularly, that maybe people yeah. outside of Southeast Asia aren't aware of? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, um, I don't know if they're not aware of them. I mean, I think there's already like a couple uh, in alternative insurance plays kind of running around the region. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that there's a bunch of interesting credit plays, you know, like, you know, get credit on your e-commerce checkout, uh, SME trade financing, invoice financing. Um, you know, we see a lot of that. There's a lot of work around AI, around KYC, money laundering that's mm -hmm. being sold to banks. So, yeah, there's, I think everything's here. That's the other thing I think people don't realize. And it's, it's interesting because I've had a friend visiting here from New York. Uh, who's longtime Google employee and then is working on his new startup and he's got kind of first time in Singapore and you're explaining to him who Grab even is. He doesn't right, know. Right. And you're explaining it like, this is what's different about Grab than Uber. They have a payment thing. They have a wallet. They have loyalty points. And his eyes are just kind of like, I had no idea. And I said, and mm -hmm. by the way, there's another one of these in Indonesia called Gojek and you can order a massage with Gojek. And he's just like, <laughs> man, I only thought of these things were like ordering a ride. Like, like he's just not mind blown, but he's kind of like, wow, the things that are happening in Southeast Asia at some scale are just totally different. Right? Mm. Um, so there's all sorts of this. I think, you know, we're, you know, we see lots of stuff. We don't talk about our deals before we get them done. We're doing a couple coming up that are in these spaces. Um, you know, that, that we think there's some unique positions to have in Southeast Asia that are going to be pretty formidable over time, right? Mm -hmm. Are you, I mean, looking at the Southeast Asian market and sort of looking ahead, you must be conscious of that sort of increasing interest in Southeast Asia, not just by, like you said, your friends from outside of the region, but also from, you know, the, the capital in China. Yep. So there's an increasing sort of, I mean, you look at Southeast Asia as more of a frontier market for what you know the capital in what in china what's a crowded market now if you look at for example like bike sharing i mean how many bike sharing schemes are there yeah. in china now so are you sort of seeing any the the you know that manifest in southeast asia i know there's been acquisitions and so on but are you seeing that sort of ripple out into other sectors yeah i mean i, I think it's definitely rippling out i mean we one of the jungle portfolio companies is palmelo one of the biggest e-commerce things in Southeast Asia, headquartered out of Bangkok, and their their big investor was like JD.com on this mm. last round. So we we definitely see it, and I think you know this will just keep happening because it's a big capital base. Um, I I still feel like there's all these nuances. You know what we've kind of chosen to do is say, look, we probably have no uh, business trying to do anything in China. We are fund and who we are because there's lots of Chinese funds and people that are for it, but we create these strategic relationships with some of them who say, look, I want to be buyers hmm. of equity or I want to buy companies. Um, and that's much of the same way we look at America. So I think, you know, we kind of ex China, ex Japan, ex Korea, look at all of Asia and say that there's quite a unique opportunity. And just the fact that things are growing uh, internet penetration just keeps growing, costs come down on some things, and that you know marketplaces and payment models are just allowing lots of things to happen that literally couldn't have existed, say, two years ago, mm -hmm. right? Uh, 
and I think it's going to keep going. I, I'm pretty bullish on the region. You know, it doesn't mean to say that someone couldn't pick up and say, well, Africa, crazy. It's going to go gangbusters. Let's go. That could work for other people. But I think that this nucleus around kind of the, the financial stability in these metropolitan cities and what's happening with them is creating just enormous growth. And sure, some things are overvalued and some things are funky plays, but we, we all can't deny that everybody's holding a phone, everybody's getting access to payment models. In fact, everybody's even getting access to like practically instant line of credit. It, you know, sky's the limit as to what could be built with these things. But I think at the same time, I'm a big kind of person that realizes that the large internet companies, whether they be the American ones or Chinese ones, are absolutely dominating, right? Mm. Um, and I think you're going to see some of these battles coming up with like, you know, if, if Facebook goes hard on, you know, personal marketplaces inside of Facebook, how does a carousel compete with that? I don't know, right? Um, if you if all these big guys gets into payments, like what you see Google doing in India, how do the just payment guys compete with it? I don't know. So these are some of the things that, you know, can be just as scary here as they are in America when it comes to competing. Right. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you, you mentioned the internet players talking in Asia. Really, you know, if you look at the the duopoly that is Alibaba versus Tencent, for example, you know, I mean, you know, one's investing in the rival of the other. It seems yep. to sort of work out like that. I mean, really, at the end of the day, everybody benefits because they're investing and in building out the platform for everybody else. And I think, you know, that is maybe when you, when you sort of have been outside of Asia for some time and you come into Asia, you don't realize how far things are down the line, you yep. know, and especially, I mean, if you've lived in the Valley and you work in the Valley, which is really the center of the world in its own right, you know, in terms of, you know, investment, in terms of startup activity, and you can understand why you don't need to look outside of the Valley for inspiration. But then, you know, you come to, Asia and you see all these things going on do you, do you think that we're kind of witnessing a shift of any sort that I mean, I'm curious that you know you're based in Singapore I and mean, Singapore's changed so rapidly even in the last five years you know you spent time in Thailand obviously you're from the US do you see you think we're seeing a change in any sense that now the US is going to have to start looking at what's going on in innovation-wise in Asia, or do you think it can still get along? I, I think they look. I think they already look anyway, and I think there's lots of uh, uh, views to this. But one of the things that I, I look, I think people don't realize what makes the valley the valley, right? What makes the valley the valley is unprecedented levels of capital, all the legal infrastructure to get things built quick all the tech infrastructure and even know, know how tech people that, Hey, I, I did this at Google. Let me roll out and do this with my startup. That, that, that concentration is just super heavy, but I don't think that it's not necessarily capable in other parts of the world. But what I have noticed as of late is you have a lot of Asian Americans or, or Asians who've lived in America for a long time that came from whether you know, I met one yesterday from Penang, who's, you know, lived most of his life in the States and done some startups and tech. And his view was, I'm not super happy with what Trump's creating. Mm. There's a lot of, you know, ego in the Valley. There's a lot of like, you know, it's expensive. It's, it's not necessarily the most always polite place to be. And he was like, 
I'm just going to poke my head up and see what's happening in Asia. So he's been doing a tour of like Hong Kong, Singapore, and of course Penang's his hometown. Hadn't been to Singapore a long time. And he was just, wow, like the scenes here. <laughs> like there's also the capital. There's also the infrastructure. There's also tech know-how. There's experienced people. And everybody's pretty polite and happy. And there isn't any really government things to deal with because, you know, there's, you know, and he's like, you know what? Like I should probably, if I'm going to go do another startup, be here. Right. Mm. And then he says his friends are kind of saying the same thing. So I think Asia is going to get this influx of people over time that have said, I don't need to think that the only place I can be successful is Silicon Valley. That's what I think is going to change. And I, and I don't think that means Silicon Valley is bad or good. It's just the truth. Like if, if you're Asian and you want to live back in Asia, you might as well, and you're in the startup scene, then go to one of those places, right? Mm. So I think that's starting to happen. And I think all these cities will get some of those people. And then that's where you start to get, hey, I did a startup in the States. Let me go do mine in Bangkok. I, I, did, I did an exit here. Let me pour the, that capital back into starting my own thing in Vietnam, you know, something like that. Mm. That's something that didn't really happen, say, four or five years ago, right? But I feel like it's beginning to happen now. It's a recent trend, isn't it? I mean, four yeah, or five years ago, exactly. people were more sort of pioneering. They were taking risks. Yeah, I'll go to Singapore or I'll go to Bangkok because what the hell? I'll, you know, it's an experience. I'll take that risk. Whereas now, I don't. Your your friend's situation, obviously, they're they're making a a more of a a balanced decision, aren't they? They're saying, okay, right. Well, if I'm in San Francisco, you know, I'm not going to get a lot of change out of five thousand bucks every month, right, in terms of my living expenses. But yep. you know, if I went to Shenzhen. For fifteen hundred dollars, you know, I could get, I could do pretty well, right? And and maybe all those those factors like the capital and the fact that you have that kind of network. I mean, they're there, but not in the kind of levels you get in, you know, the Silicon Valley area. Yeah. But they're growing. Like in China, they're probably at like crazy levels, actually, even as compared to the U.S. Right. So, exactly. but I think the interesting thing is it isn't kind of a winner take all scenario where you must be here to be successful. Of course, you might still have to non is the American market for you to be in. If you're building some SaaS based product, you know, we even see that in companies here, like, hey guys, this is fantastic, but your biggest market opportunity for this is in America. Hmm. So should you really be headquartered in Singapore to do that? You know? Um, so you still have those questions, but you don't have to do the one that says, can I build startups from other places in the world for other markets? You can, right? And and it's obviously working. And I think that's what's great about Southeast Asia. And I mm. think it just depends on which part of it you like to live in, but there's a lot of choice. Right. right. Well, that that's a problem in itself, isn't it? Because we, sure. we get a lot of people who listen to the podcast who come from outside of Asia and some of them move to Asia. And one of the questions they ask is, where do I go? And it's like, I mean, if you're moving to Silicon Valley, it's the valley, right? I mean, you've got a choice between a, a very sort of geographically dense area. You know, you're not going to make a mistake if you're the north or the south of the valley, but in in Asia, you could choose between how many cities have you, you know, could, you could throw a stick and hit a hundred cities that have rightful claims to be a tech ecosystem of some sort. So how do you advise those people? If I was a startup founder, move, where, where do I start? Do I just say, okay, stick a pin in the map or? No, I think you got to be more prescriptive about it. I always tell people that I think people with families versus, you know, there's a couple of different layers. You're single, you know, male or female, you're single you probably want to be where you think you're comfortable, you think you're safe, and, and maybe, you know, you're going to date people and which culture do you like. I think you have to think, I, I always think people forget about the personal things yeah, because yeah. you shouldn't just be doing a startup nine hours a day and going to bed because that's not 
a lifestyle. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. so I think if you're single, you know, again, either male or female, you say like, I really love Japan. I, I love these people and I might find myself dating. They're great. Right. Um, if you're a couple, I think you're like, well, where does my partner want to live and what, what is interesting to you and what's safe for the both of us and where, where can we both find work? Cause you're going to do your startup, but we still need an income. Where can I work? I think those things become a factor. I think as you move up this ladder, the, the, when the com- the countries narrow down in my opinion, hmm. uh, because of safety or because you have kids that need to go to school or your spouse needs uh, a job, you know, cause like for an example, like you might be moved to Indonesia to go be an executive at Gojek, but you'll find that your spouse is going to have a really hard time finding work, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't get a, a work permit for the spouse there like you do in Singapore. Um, and you might have a hard time as a foreigner actually getting someone to give you a work permit because you actually, you know, so I think you have all these permutations you have to think about that, you know, and you have to think about, do I need to hire people? Where am I going to be? Cause I, we've met some people that of different races in different countries have a hard time hiring. Um, that just culturally there's not a fit, so they can't build big teams. So I think you have to think about all of these things. And, and then I think you kind of narrow down to certain metropolitan areas have the facets of all these things, like a KL, potentially a Bangkok, potentially a Singapore, um, you know, maybe it's Vietnam. I don't know. But I just think you have to put all the cards on the table as to what you need versus just I want to do a startup. It's mm, great advice. Hey, rounding up, Michael, we can't sure. forget about Ask a VC. I know you have this f- feature in your blog, but you've now yeah. sort of taken it to your Telegram group. We were talking off air about that. What's so, going so, on? Yeah, so yeah, so I leave it up there. It doesn't. It gets hit every once in a while. I don't really promote it. I I, I thought maybe people might use it more, but it's cool. Um, I I've always been trying to figure out, you know, and maybe it's from a notion of pay it back, but it's from a we all learn through helping, right? So I've been trying to figure out the best ways to do this. And I won't say these are my ideas, but I, when I joined John Russell's Telegram group, I realized that, hey, this works for some people, just this chat. So I did a one on uh, with Telegram that is a chat group, and people are just asking questions about VC and startups. Sure, there's, there's other chat, random chat about this website or this crypto thing or this thing in the news, but generally it's, Hey, I'm trying to do a round and you know, how do you structure a note for an A or what's venture debt or like, and there's just other people in there. So it's a small group. It's only about 30 something, but everybody's welcome to join. The main thing is you have to say who you are, why you're there and be helpful. Um, then, but I realized with people in China and people moving around that the firewall situation, you have to do telegram on a VPN. Right. Um, so I've been playing around with discord, which is the gamer chat thing. Yeah. Um, and that one's been pretty cool because it actually works through VPNs because it's a server-based infrastructure. And as I, as I understand it, if China thinks you're doing bad with it, they can just shut down your instance. They don't have to block Discord. Hmm. Um, and then the interesting thing that Discord has, because this came up, we were chatting one time in the Telegram group about a particular construct for angel rounds. And two or three people were like, can we just chat about this? And I was like, let's go to Hangout. But the interesting thing with Discord is you can just go to voice. Yeah. And it's just voice chat. And so I want to experiment with that. And then one of the things I want to do is maybe every week or every couple of weeks say, hey, I'm going to be in there on voice for 30 minutes. Anybody can join. And it's a anybody ask anything kind of thing or ask me anything. Because I feel like, uh, you know, that's, that's one way of uh, helping people and learning. So I'm trying to kind of evolve to that and, and, and then just 
again, that's how you meet people. And even we see deal flow that way. It's, it's great. Right. Cause I, these communities are what's interesting to me, but I, I haven't hit the nail on the head as the best way to build them. Cause obviously it's not the full-time gig to go build community, but I'm trying to do some of it via mm. these tools. I love it though. I mean, I love the fact you're using Discord, which you say is a gamer technology. I mean, you're a VC and you know, your job is to help build companies. And my son, my 12 year old son is an active member of Discord and it's so active in that community. But the fact that you're now using it, I find that's fascinating because, you know, maybe then that's how these technologies get taken into the, the business market. Somebody finds out a user case and I don't know if you learned it from your children, but that's how I found out about Discord. You know, it's like, what is this Discord thing that they keep using when they're sort of sharing these gamer chats? But, you know, they have like 40 or 50 people on these channels, right? These groups. Oh, yeah. And wow. Yeah, I love it. But the fact that you're using it as well. But I guess now people want to say, how do I get on board? How do I get involved in this group? You don't want everybody just sort of rocking up. and. Yeah, so like, I, 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 like, I, I don't, again, it's so small that I haven't, like, I think anybody can rock up. I think the thing we've been telling people is please tell us who you are and the thing. So I actually on the Telegram thing, I have a bot. It's called the announce bot. So if you join the group, it pings you back to say you must announce yourself. Um, I don't think there's a similar one in Discord. So we just basically say that like, um, you know, please tell us who you are. This isn't a marketing thing. It isn't a sales channel. It's uh, can, can we at least have adult discussions here that are tailored towards helping each other specifically to startups, tech and VC. And it's even been techie stuff where someone's talking about analytics packages and which ones to use. So I think of it as startup related things, but obviously my eye is a VC, but I'm a product guy and just trying to like product tech VC, keep it scope to that. Um, you know, so anybody can join and if it's boring for you, get out. If it's not stay in. So, um, something like that. So sounds great. I'm sure yeah. you know if so they I think like what we can do in. is I don't know if you have your show notes for this. Yeah. I can give the URLs for the show notes. We'll put it um, in. And we're kind of running both of them, but I, I may switch it to the Discord only because then the Chinese have an easy time getting in, and I like this idea of voice. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested in having people get in this because I, it's just back to helping, and I'll tell you why. It's because what we've seen are some classic mistakes that people are making. Uh, either with their fundamental paperwork or their round constructs that create companies that they will have a hard time getting follow-on investments in by mm -hmm. institutional or let's say VCs. So that's actually what got me started on this because I was like, wow, I just saw this cap table that's like, holy crap, let me beat my head on the table. Mm -hmm. I would love to invest in your company, but not with that cap table. And then people are like, well, why is that a problem? And, and there's all these reasons. And a lot of people don't realize why it might be a problem. But what we usually tell people is, hey, if you got a cap table where your investors practically own as much as the founders do very early on, as more VCs come in, the founders are basically relegated to employees, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a startup. You want your founders to like come hell or high water work on this thing because they own 70, 60% of it. And it will be a meaningful thing to their life if it exits. But if you're a founder and you only own 10 or 20% of this thing and these other random people that just happen to give you money own the most of it, it's already kind of upside down, right? Mm. So these are some of the things that I realize that like, you know, no one meant to make these mistakes, but they probably made them because they didn't have the information or know any better. Um, and, and I think in America, there's a lot of places where people have learned these tricks and the angels are more educated and all this. And I think in Asia, we're not quite there yet. So the idea was, can I help 
via community uh, help everybody, right? And then can I learn from this as well? That's the idea. And I know maybe it sounds kind of crazy utopian, but that that's actually the thesis, but I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out. Well, I think it's a great resource and it answers a need, doesn't it? And that's the best start is that if there's a real need for it, the people, you know, the, the founders have this need and they need to talk about these things. Help me, it's founders, it's other angels, it's even other VCs because everybody, like I, I keep telling people, like this is not a competition. Maybe it is. I mean, maybe we see a deal and I'm competing with so-and-so. But let's all agree that all the boats rise yeah. when all the markets are going to do better. And I'm the first guy to congratulate a VC with an exit. I'm going to be the first guy to congratulate someone that went all the way because it's great for everybody. It shouldn't be, oh, he did it, I can't. It's He just showed the region what's possible that should get you excited, right? So that's where I feel like all boats do rise and everybody should really want to help everybody. That's the best thing for the ecosystem. Well, Michael, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. It's been inspiring as usual. And I think, you know, there's a lot of lessons to take on board from today. And, you know, there's a lot of food for thought, not just for founders out there, but for angel investors and VCs, because, you know, for you to come on and share your time, I think it's great. Also, to give us a heads up on your the resources that you're putting out there. I mean, obviously, it's an experiment, but I think you're heading in the right direction, and that will surely grow. You know, if people can get behind that and add some value to that Discord group or whatever the, the format is that you use in the future, I think it'd be fantastic because you know more of that. Because maybe that would give a model that other people can look at and say, "Hey, we can do this in this sector as well, right?" You know, why not? Yep. So, thanks for your time, Michael Smith. Great to have you on. Awesome. Good seeing you again. Good audio seeing you. And then uh, let's do this again in six months. <laughs> exactly. Give us an update. We want to know how your group's growing. It's from 30 upwards. It's about 30 right now. I, I, the one I started with Discord, just a few people, but I might try to get people to move over and shut one down just because it just ease of use. But yeah, that's the idea. But everybody's welcome. So I think if you go to my website and you go to the contact page, um, I'm seedvc.blog, right? Um, I, I put the stuff there to make it easy for people. Awesome. Michael Smith, everybody. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.